Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art, and I'm your host today, and we are welcoming spring and all of its allergy season-ridden glory. Got a story for you that I'll be reading today, and it will likely be uh, divided up into at least two parts for the month of April, and it'll tie into our reading prompt for the month as well. First of all, thank you so much for everyone who reached out after the last episode where I talked with Nat Bickle about the Polar Express. And a lot of you wrote in to say how much you loved that movie and loved the episode. So I want to thank Natalie for coming on and for all of you reaching out to me uh, just to to share your memories and thoughts about the movie. Many of you said uh, it was a favorite. I don't have any lengthy memories to share from a listener, I did hear from Sean, who is the host of the Christmas Podcasts podcast. He said that uh, his son, who's now 26, The Polar Express was his favorite movie. And uh, his favorite song is Josh Groban's Believe, which uh, is featured in that film. And at his wedding this past January, his wife surprised him with her processional song being a very beautiful version of Believe. He teared up, and uh, Sean said, I almost lost it when he teared up. Uh, So, Sean... That sounds really lovely, and I know uh, us us dads are supposed to be tough. You know, we're supposed to be the tough guy, but it's okay to, to shed a tear or two. If you saw my audio clip on, I, I think it's on Instagram of our episode from last week, you'll hear a very beautiful rendition of When Christmas Comes to Town uh, played on the piano in the background of that clip. That is one of my favorite versions of that song. I mean, it's probably my favorite version of that song. Uh, It's done by Doug Hammer. It's on his album, Noel. It's a really fantastic and cozy album of just gentle Christmas piano music. It also has one of my favorite versions of In the Bleak Midwinter. Uh, So it's well worth your time to listen to that one. That's probably my top favorite Christmas album. It might be my top in my top three or five for sure. And so that's one I try to wait to listen to until it gets closer to the Christmas season, like, you know, early November or so. You'll hear Doug Hammer's music played a lot if you listen to it on on apps like Pandora. His music comes up a lot and things like that. Uh, But he he has two Christmas albums that I know of, and both are fantastic. Uh, If you like that gentle piano music, it's good for background, it's good to read to, and it's good to, you know, have it like a dinner party or something. It's not distracting or anything. So I'd recommend that to you. But yeah, thanks again for uh, just your feedback on that episode. I had a lot of fun putting that together. And Natalie, again, is just a wonderful guest. And I'm already trying to think of ways to get her back on the podcast. It was just a fantastic discussion. And I appreciate it. All right, for this month's reading prompt, again, the prompt is Home Alone. You will have to read a book or story about uh, somebody who has to overcome a challenge on their own or with a a small group. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to read, but then I found this delightful story called The Burglar in the Blizzard by Alice Miller. But the Christmas is very light in this, in, in that it just happens on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But it reminded me a little bit of Home Alone. It tells the story of a man who comes home to find that his house is in the process of being burgled, and it's Christmas Eve, so he catches the burglar red-handed. 
What follows is a really amusing story of the burglar trying to talk his way out of it, um, explaining the situation to him about his sister and how she has been uh, left back at his house in the middle of a blizzard. So that the man is trying to determine if this is a real threat or if the burglar is trying to get him to, to leave so that he can continue to rob his house. The ending was, was a bit unexpected. I absolutely loved it. And I thought this would probably fit the theme or at least the spirit of Home Alone. I'm going to be reading that story today. And like I said, part one will, will be today and part two will be next week. So for our story today, again, is called The Burglar in the Blizzard by Alice Dewar Miller. She was born on July 28th in 1874 and died on August 22nd, 1942. She's an American writer and was very politically active in the American suffrage movement. Wrote a really kind of snarky poem and it's called Our Women People. And later it was added into a collection of poems under the same title. And uh, these words helped inspire women who were engaged in the suffrage movement. And here's the poem. It has nothing to do with Christmas or even winter for that matter. But I just thought it was amusing so I'd share it with you. Father, what is a legislature? A representative body elected by the people of the state. Are women people? No, my son. Criminals? Lunatics and women are not people. Do legislatures legislate for nothing? Oh no, they are paid a salary. By whom? By the people. Are women people? Of course, my son, just as much as men are. <laughs> I like that little exchange. That women are people only as long as it is politically expedient for them to be so. <laughs> I laugh, but unfortunately I feel like some things haven't changed in, you know, the last hundred years, uh, unfortunately. Now, that's just a little hint of the kind of wit that she has. And I, I think she's, she'd be an author worth looking into to reading more of what she wrote, uh, especially if politics are your uh, cup of tea. Let's get to our story. So go ahead and make yourself comfortable if you can. Settle in by the Christmas fire. And I'll read you The Burglar in the Blizzard by Alice Miller. Chapter 1 Jeffrey Holland stood up and for the second time surveyed the restaurant in search of other members of his party, two fingers in the pocket of his waistcoat as if they had just relinquished his watch. He was tall enough to be conspicuous and well-bred enough to be indifferent to the fact, good-looking in a bronzed, blonde, clean-shaven way, and branded in the popular imagination as a young and active millionaire. At a neighboring table, a man leant forward and whispered to the other men and women with him, Do you know who that is? That is young Holland. What? That boy? He doesn't look as if he were out of school. No, said one of the women, elaborating the comment. He does not look old enough to order dinner, let alone managing minds. Oh, I, I guess he can order a dinner all right, said the first man. He is older than he looks. He must be 26. What do you suppose he does with all that money? The first thing he did with it, at the moment, was to purchase an evening paper, for just then he snapped his fingers at a boy who promptly ran to get him one. Well, one thing he does, answered the man who had first given information. He has an apartment in this building upstairs, and I bet that cost him a pretty penny. 
In the meantime, Holland had opened his paper, scanned the headlines, and was about to turn to the stock quotations when a paragraph of interest caught his eye. So marked was the gesture with which he raised it to his eyes that his admirers at the next table noticed it and speculated on the subject of the paragraph. It was headed, Millionaire's Summer Homes Looted, and said further, Hillsborough, December 21st. The fourth in a series of daring robberies which have been taking place in this neighborhood during the past month occurred last night when the residence of C.B. Vaughn of New York was entered and valuable wines and bric-a-brac removed. The robbery was not discovered until this morning when a shutter was observed, unfastened, on the second story. On entering, the watchman found the house had been carefully gone over, and although only a few objects seem to be missing, these are of the greatest value. The thief apparently had plenty of time and probably occupied the whole night in his search. This is the more remarkable because the watchman asserts that he spent at least an hour on the piazza during the night. How the thief effected an entrance by the second story is not clear. During the past five weeks, the house of L.G. Eines, T. Wilson, and Abraham Marheim have been entered in a manner almost precisely similar. There was a report yesterday that some of the Marheim silver had been discovered with a dealer in Boston, but that he could not identify the person from whom he bought them, further than that she was a young lady to whom they might very well have belonged. The fact that it was a young lady who disposed of them to him suggests the goods must have changed hands several times. The Marheim family is abroad, and the servants... Here a waiter touched his elbow. Mr. and Mrs. Vaughn have come, sir, he said. Send up to my apartment and tell Mrs. May we are sitting down to dinner, returned Holland promptly, and advanced to meet the prosperous-looking couple approaching. I'm afraid we are late, said the lady. But can you blame us? Have you heard? We have been telegraphing to Hillsborough all the afternoon to find out what has gone. You are not late. My sister has not come down yet. I was just reading about your robbery. Have you lost anything of value? Oh, I suppose so, said Mrs. Vaughn cheerfully sitting down and beginning to draw off her gloves. We had a Van Dyke etching and some enamels that have gone certainly, and Charlie feels awfully about his wine. Yes, said Mr. Vaughn gloomily. I tell you, he's going to have a happy time with that champagne. It is the best I ever tasted. Upon my word, said Geoffrey, they are a nice lot of countrymen up there, four robberies and not so much as a clue. You need not be afraid, said Mrs. Vaughn rather spitefully. In spite of all your treasures, I don't believe any thief would take the trouble to climb to the top of your mountain. Holland's selection of a distant hilltop for his large place pleased no true Hillsboroughite. As an eligible bachelor, he was inaccessible, and as a property holder, he was too far away to increase the value of Hillsborough real estate by his wonderful lawns and gardens. Mrs. Vaughn's irritation did not appear to disturb Geoffrey for he laughed very amiably, and replied that he could only hope that the thief was as poor a pedestrian as she seemed to imagine, as he should not like to lose any of his things, and he added that in his opinion Vaughn ought to be starting for Hillsborough at once. Pooh, said the gentleman, I can't go with the market in this condition. Would lose more than the whole house is worth. You would go duck shooting in a minute, said Holland, and this would be a good deal better sport. Mr. Vaughn ignored this remark. The thing to do, he said, is to offer a reward, a big enough reward to attract some first-class detective. All right, said Geoffrey, readily. I'll join you. Those other fellows ought to be willing to put up a thousand apiece. That will be five thousand. Is that enough? We can have it in the papers tomorrow. What shall I say? Five thousand dollars reward will be paid for information leading to the conviction, and so on. 
I'll go and telephone now. And with a promptness which surprised Mr. Vaughn, he was gone. When he came back, his sister was in her place, and they were all discussing the burglary with interest. Mrs. May, who was somewhat older than her brother, had some of the more agreeable qualities of a gossip. That is to say, she had imagination and a good memory for detail. For my part, she was saying, I have the greatest respect and admiration for him. Do you know he could not find anything worth taking at the Wilsons? After all his trouble, I have often sat in that drawing room myself and wondered if they should offer me anything in it as a present, whether I could find something that would not actually disgrace me. I never could. He evidently felt the same way. The Wilsons make a great to-do about the house having been entered and tell you how he must have been frightened away frightened away by the hideousness of their things. Those woolly paintings on wood, and the black satin parasol that turns out to be an umbrella stand. My dear Florence, said his brother mildly, how can a black satin parasol be an umbrella stand? Exactly, Jeff, how can it? That is what you say all through the Wilson's house. How could it be? However, it is not really black satin, only painted to resemble it. The waste paper baskets look like trunks of trees, and the matchboxes look like old shoes. Nothing in the house is really what it looks like, except the beds. They look uncomfortable, and someone who had stayed there told me that they were. Dear Florence, said Mrs. Vaughn, is it not like her kindness of heart, it runs in the family, to try and make my burglary into a compliment, but really, though it is flattering to be robbed by a connoisseur, I could forego the honor. You see, you have taken away my last hope that my very best escaped his attention. No, indeed, the best is all he cared for. Honestly, Jane, haven't you an admiration for a man of so much taste and ability? Just think, he has entered four houses and there is not the slightest trace of him. There must be traces of him, said Geoffrey. The Ein's house was entered after that snowstorm in the early part of the month. There must have been footprints. Of course, said Mr. Vaughn. That is what makes me think that the watchmen are in it. It's probably a combination of two or three of them. Well, that lets Geoffrey out, said the irrepressible Florence. No one would take his watchman into any combination. He is a thousand and two and feeble for his age. However, there is no use in discussing the possibility, for it is not a combination of watchmen, begging your pardon, Mr. Vaughn. It is a lonely genius, a slim, dark figure in a slouch hat. That is the way I imagine him. Do you really suppose that a watchman would take pair of Mrs. Ein's best linen sheets, embroidered in her initials, the monogram so thick that it scratches your nose, and a beautiful light blue silk coverlet, all just out from Paris? I saw them when she first had them. What, said Geoffrey, addressing the other male intellect present, do you make of the young woman who disposed of some of the Marheim silver in Boston? It was a young lady who disposed of the silver, but it was Mrs. May who answered. She is, of course, the lady of his love, a lady doubtless of high social position in Boston. There was a book about something like that once. He is just waiting to make one more grand coup, rob the bank or something, and then the world will be startled by the news of their elopement. They will go and live somewhere luxuriously in the South Pacific, and travelers will bring home strange stories of their happiness and charm. Perhaps, though, he would turn pirate. That would suit his style. I hope, said Holland, that he won't take a fancy to rob the Hillsborough Bank, for I consider it public-spirited to keep quite a little money there. You begin to make me nervous. No bank robbery would make me nervous, replied his sister. That is the comfort of being insignificant. I have not enough money in any bank to know the difference. And as for my humble dwelling in Hillsborough, who would take the trouble to rifle it when Jeffrey's palace is within an easy walk? 
Besides, I haven't anything worth the attention of a respectable burglar like this one. Uh, thank you, said Jeffrey. I'm sorry I spent so much time choosing your Christmas present a year ago. Oh, of course, Jeff dear, that wonderful old silver is valuable, but it is put away where I defy any burglar to find it. There is only my sable coat, and I am going to send for that as soon as I have time to have it cut over. In my opinion, said Mr. Vaughn, the man is no longer in the neighborhood. He would scarcely dare try a fifth attempt, while the whole country was so aroused. You see, Hillsborough has always been an attractive place to thieves. It is such an easy place to get away from. Three railroads within reach. A man would be pretty sure to be able to catch a passing freight train on one of them at almost any time, to say nothing of the increased difficulty of tracing him. I don't suppose he will ever be caught, said Florence. When he has got all he wants, he will simply melt away and be forgotten. If he were caught... Here she was interrupted by the waiter who laid a telegram at her plate. It had come to her brother's apartment and been sent down. Who is telegraphing me? she said as she tore it open. I hope Jack has not been breaking himself. Opening it, she read, Your house was entered about five o'clock this afternoon. Tea set and sable coat missing. Chapter 2 The next evening at seven o'clock, Holland stepped out of the train on the Hillsborough station. He wore a long fur coat, for the morning had been bitterly cold in New York, and though the snow was now falling in small close flakes, the temperature had not risen appreciably, and a wild wind was blowing. He looked about for the figure of McFarlane, for he had telegraphed the old man to meet him at the train with a trap, but there was no one to be seen. The station, which in summer on the arrival of the express, was a busy scene with well-dressed women and well-kept horses, was now utterly deserted except for one native who had charge of the mails. Hello, Harris, Jeffrey sung out. Is McFarlane here for me? I ain't seen him. Guess it's too stormy for the old man, Harris replied, dropping the mail bag into his wagon. Then you've got to drive me out. What, all the way to your place? No, sir. I guess it's too stormy for me, too. But Jeffrey at last, by the promise of three times what the trip was worth, induced Harris to change his mind. He stepped into the mail cart, and having stopped at the post office to leave the bag, and at the stable to change the cart for a sleigh, they finally set out on their five-mile drive. "'Guess you come up to see about Mr. May's house being robbed?' Harris hazarded before they had gone far. "'You're a nice lot, aren't you?' returned Geoffrey. Five robberies and not a motion to catch the thief.' Oh, I don't know, I don't know. There is a big reward out today, said Harris, divided between pride and notoriety and shame at the lawlessness of his native town. Yes, but not by any of you. Well, the boys did talk some of a vigilance committee, if any more houses was robbed. You're going to wait for him to make up his half-dozen. Well, to tell the truth, said Harris, it seems like he only went for you city folks, and I guess the boys thought you could better afford to lose a few things than they could to lose their sleep. That's about the size of it. Geoffrey could not but laugh. That's a fine-spirited way to look at it, I must say. Well, returned Harris, who appeared to have need of the monosyllable in order to collect and arrange his ideas. Tain't lack of sand exactly either, for most of the fellows here think it's a woman. A woman? cried Geoffrey, remembering the lady in Boston. Yes, sir, said Harris. A young woman. Look at the things took. What burglar would want sheets in a lady's coat? Besides, just before the first one happened, Will Brown, he was driving along up your way, and a young woman, pretty as a picter, Will said, slips out of the wood and asks for a lift. Well, 
Well, it takes her some two miles, and when they got to that piece of woods at the back of your place, she says of a sudden that she guesses she wants exercise, and will walk the rest of the way. And out she gets, and no one has seen her since. Seems kinder strange, no house but yours within six miles, and you away. It would have seemed quite as strange if I had been at home, returned Geoffrey, amused at his imputation. Well, Harris went on, imperturbably, you can't tell the rights of them stories. Will Brown, he's a liar, just like all the Browns. Still this time he seemed to think he was telling the truth. Looks like we were going to have a blizzard, don't it? When they reached the McFarlane cottage, Mrs. McFarlane appeared bobbing on the threshold. She was an old Scotch woman and covered all occasions with courtesy. It appeared that Holland's telegram had been duly telephoned from the office, but that her husband was down with the rheumatism, the second gardener dismissed, and the boy allowed to go home to spend Christmas, so that there had been no one to send. Geoffrey suggested that she might have telephoned to the local livery stable, and she was at once so overcome at her own stupidity that she could do nothing but bob and murmur until Geoffrey sent her away to get him something to eat. It was about ten o'clock when he determined to take a turn about his house. The next day he intended removing all valuables to the vaults of the Hillsborough Bank. It was a long walk from the cottage, and Geoffrey, as he trudged uphill against the wind, was surprised to find how much snow had already fallen. He had expected to return to New York the next day, but now a fair prospect of being stalled on the way presented itself. It took him so much longer to reach the house than he had supposed that he abandoned all idea of entering it. It stood before him grimly like a mountain of gray stone, its face plastered with snow. He walked around it, feeling each door and window to be sure of the fastenings. Once past the corner, the house sheltered him from the wind. He was conscious of that exhilaration snowstorms so often bring while at the same time the atmosphere of desolation that surrounds all shut-up houses, even one's own, took hold of him. Unconsciously, he stopped and felt in his pocket for his revolver, and at the same moment, faintly, in the interior of the house, he heard a clock strike. The sound was not perhaps alarming in itself, yet it sounded ominously in Geoffrey's ears. He recognized, or thought he recognized, the bell. It was that of an old French clock he had bought, and had never had put in order. He had never been able to make it go, but once, touching it inadvertently, he had aroused in it a breath of life so that it had struck one, this same sweet piercing note. Who, he wondered, was touching it now? Geoffrey was one of those who act best and naturally without delay. Now he hesitated not at all. He had the keys of the house in his pocket, and he moved quickly toward a side door, which he remembered swung silently on its hinges. It was not so much that he believed that there was any one in the house, perhaps the most apprehensive, a burglar comes as a surprise, but he felt he had two good grounds for suspicion to fail to investigate. He unlocked the door without a sound. As he stepped within, doubt was put an end to by the patch of white light that, streaming out of the library door, fell across the passageway before him. He stooped down and took off his boots and then cautiously approached the open door and looked in, knowing that darkness and preparation were in his favor. His caution was unnecessary, for his entrance had not been heard. The Hillsborough theory of the femininity of the burglar instantly fell to the ground. A man of medium size was standing before one of the bookcases, with his elbow resting near the clock. He was holding a volume in his hands with the careful ease of a book fancier. 
The man's back was turned so that a sandy head and a strongly built figure were all Geoffrey could make out. Had it not been for a glimpse of a mark on his face, he might have been a student at work. So intense did he appear that Geoffrey could not resist the temptation to make his entrance dramatic. Creeping almost to the other's elbow, revolver in hand, he said gently, Fond of reading? The man, naturally startled, made a surprisingly quick movement toward his own revolver, and had it knocked out of his hand with a benumbing blow. Geoffrey secured the weapon, and seeing the man's retreat, may be excused for supposing the struggle over. He underestimated his adversary's resources, for the burglar, retreating with a look of surrender, came within reach of the electric light, turned it off, and fled in the total darkness that followed. Geoffrey sprang to the switch, but the few seconds that his fingers were fumbling for it told against him. When he turned it on, the room was empty. The door by which the thief had gone opened on the main hall and not on the passageway, so that Geoffrey still had time to secure the outer door. Next, he lit the chandelier in the hall, but its illumination told nothing. It was Geoffrey's own sharp ears that told him of light footsteps beyond the turn of the stairs. Here Holland recognized at once that the burglar had a great advantage. The flight of stairs from the hall reached the upper story at a point very near where the back stairs came up, while they descended to widely different places in the lower story, so that the burglar, looking down, could choose his flight of stairs as soon as he saw his pursuer committed to the other, and thus reached the lower hall with several seconds to spare. Fortunately, however, Geoffrey remembered that there was a door at the foot of the back stairs. With incredible quickness, he turned off the light again, threw his boots upstairs in the ingenuous hope that the sound would give the effect of his own ascent, dashed around and locked the door at the foot of the stairs, and then at the top of his speed ran up the front stairs and down the back. The result was somewhat as he expected. The burglar had reached the door at the foot of the stairs, and finding it locked was halfway up again when he and Geoffrey met. The impetus of Geoffrey's descent carried the man backward. They both landed against the locked door with a force that burst it open. Geoffrey, on top and armed, had little difficulty in securing his bruised foe, and marching him back to the library where he now took the precaution of locking all the doors. Geoffrey, who had felt himself tingling with excitement in the natural love of the chase, now had time to wonder what he was going to do with his capture. He thought of the darkness, the storm, the absence of the two undermen, and the helplessness of the McFarlands. Then he remembered the telephone, which, fortunately, stood in a closet off the library. He turned to the burglar. Stand with your face to the wall and your hands up, he said, and if I see you move, I'd just as lief shoot you as look at you. With which warning he approached the telephone and, still keeping an eye on the other, rang up central. There was no answer. He rang again. Six, seven times he repeated the process unavailingly. He tried the private wire to the McFarland cottage with no better result. At this point, the burglar spoke. Oh, what the devil, he said mildly. I can't stand here with my hands over my head all night. You'll stand there, replied Geoffrey with some temper, until I'm ready for you to move. And when will that be? When this fool of a central answers. Oh, not as long as that, I hope, said the burglar. Because, to tell the truth, I always cut the telephone wires before I enter a house. There was a pause, in which it was well Geoffrey did not see the artless smile of satisfaction which wreathed the burglar's face. 
At length Geoffrey said, In that case you might as well sit down, for we seem likely to stay here until morning. He calculated that by that time Mrs. MacFarlane, alarmed at his absence, would send someone to look for him, someone who could be used as a messenger to fetch the constable. To this suggestion the burglar appeared to acquiesce, or he sank at once into an armchair, an armchair toward which Holland himself was making his way, knowing it to be the most comfortable for an all-night session. Feeling the absurdity of making any point of the matter, however, he contented himself with the sofa. Take off your mask, he said as he sat down. Oh, so I will, thank you, said the burglar, as if he had been asked to remove his hat, and with his left hand he slipped it off. The face that met Geoffrey's interested gaze was thin, yet ruddy, and tanned by exposure so that his very light, brilliant eyes flared oddly in so dark a surrounding. Above, his sandy hair, which had receded somewhat from his forehead, curled up from his temples like a baby's. His upper lip was long, and with a pleasant mouth gave his face an expression of humor. His hands were ugly, but small. They sat for some time without moving. The burglar engaged in bandaging the cut on his right hand with obvious indifference to Holland's presence. Geoffrey, meanwhile, studying him carefully. The process of bandaging over, the man reached out with his hand toward the bookcase and, selecting a volume of Stern, settled back comfortably in his chair. Holland stared at him an instant in wonder, and then attempted to follow his example. But his attention to his book was much less concentrated than that of his captive whose expression soon showed him to be completely absorbed. They must have sat thus for an hour before the burglar began to show signs of restlessness. He asked if it were still snowing and looked distinctly disturbed on being told it was. At last he broke the silence again. You don't remember me, do you? He said. Geoffrey slowly raised his eyes without moving. His revolver was drooping in his right hand. He ran his mind over his criminal acquaintance unsuccessfully and repeated, Remember you? Yes, we were at school together for a time. Geoffrey stared and then exclaimed spontaneously, You used to be able to wag your ears. Can still. Why, you are Skinny McVeigh. The man nodded. Neither was without a sense of humor and yet saw nothing comic in these untender reminiscences. I remember the masters all hated you, said Geoffrey, but you were straight enough then, weren't you? Again, the man nodded. I took to the sort of thing a month or so ago. After a moment, Geoffrey said, Did not I hear you were in the Navy? No, said McVeigh. I was at Annapolis for a few months. I had an idea I should like the Navy, but heavens above, I could not stand the Academy. They threw me out. It seems I had broken every rule they had ever made. It was worse than state's prison. Are you in a position to judge? asked Geoffrey coolly. No, said McVeigh, as if he nevertheless had information on the subject. Well, you will be soon, said Holland, not sorry for an opportunity to point out that his heart was not softened by recollections of his school days. But McVeigh appeared to ignore this intimation. Yes, he said ruminatively. I've done a lot of things in my time. Well, I don't want to hear about them, said Geoffrey, who had no intention of being drawn into an intimate interchange. The burglar looked more surprised than angered at this shortness, and only said, Would you have any objection to my putting a match to that fire? No, said Geoffrey, and McVeigh, with wondered dexterity, managed to start a cheering blaze with his left hand. 
For a few minutes, Jeffrey's determined attention to his book discouraged his companion, but presently wrapping the pages of Tristram Shandy with the back of his hand, he exclaimed, Stern! Ah, there was a man. Something of my own type, too, it sometimes strikes me. Capable, you know, really a genius, but so unfortunately different from other people. Ordinary standards meant nothing to him. Too original. Sees life from another standpoint entirely. That's me. I... Sit down, roared Geoffrey. Oh, it's nothing, nothing, said McVeigh. Only I'd, I'd talk better on my feet. Well, you wouldn't talk as well with a bullet in you. McVeigh sank back again in his chair. Yes, he said, that's me. Why, Holland, I have no doubt you would be surprised if you knew the number of things that I can do, that I am really proficient in. Anything with the hands, he waved his fingers supplely in the air, is no trouble to me at all. I have at once a natural skill that most people take a lifetime to acquire. I'm told there's work for all where you are going. McVeigh looked a trifle puzzled for an instant, but never allowed himself to remain at a loss. He said, Work? Do you really mean to say that you believe in a utilitarian heaven, where we are going to work with our hands? For my part, I had reference to the penitentiary, said Geoffrey. Oh, yes, of course, the penitentiary. There are some wonderful men in the, in the penitentiary. You don't admit that, I suppose, with your conventional ideas. But to me, they are just as admirable as any other great creative artist, sculptor, or financier. I see you don't quite get that. You are hemmed in by conventional standards and your possessions and all the things to which you attach such great importance. I don't attach so much importance that I steal them from other people, said Geoffrey. Philistine, Holland, Philistine! Is not anyone who has anything stealing from someone or other? Of course. But I see you don't catch the idea. Well, I dare say I would not either in your place. Rather think I would not. My sister is just the same way. Sweet girl, witty in her own way, but Philistine. She is so good as to be my companion, apparently on equal terms, in many ways my superior, but it would be impossible for me even to mention these ideas to her, ideas which are of the greatest interest to me. I wonder, said Geoffrey, how much of all this rubbish you believe? McVeigh smiled with great sweetness. I wonder myself, Holland. Still, it is undeniably amusing. And the main thing is that I enjoy life. A hard life, too, in many ways. Fate has dealt me some sad blows. Look at such a coincidence as you're turning up tonight, of all nights in the year. It was scarcely a coincidence. I came... Oh, I know, I know. You came to see after your sister's things, but still, if you look at it a little more carefully, you will see that it was a coincidence that you should be, by nature, a man of prompt action. Nine men out of ten in your place... Still, I'm not depressed. You cannot say, Holland, that I behave or talk like a man who has ten years of hard labor before him, can you? I dare say you have never been thrown with a person who showed less anxiety. Yet, as a matter of fact, there is something preying on my mind, something entirely aside from anything you could imagine. You don't tell me, said Geoffrey, who did not know whether to be most amused or infuriated by his companion's conversation. I am about to tell you, said McVeigh, graciously. I am very seriously worried about my sister. In fact, I don't see that there is any getting away from it. You will have to let me go out for an hour or so and get her. Let you do what? Get my sister. She's living in a little hut in your woods, and I'm actually afraid she will be snowed up. It seems highly probable. Well then, I must go and get her. Geoffrey stared at him for a moment, 
and then said, You must be crazy. Because I am, answered McVeigh, as if the suggestion were not without an amusing side. Maybe I am, but that is not the point. Think of a girl, Holland, alone, all night, in such a storm. Now I put it to you. It is not a position in which you would leave your sister, is it? Geoffrey began a sentence, and finding it inadequate, contented himself with a laugh. There, you see, said McVeigh. It's out of the question. The place is drafty, too, though there is a stove. Do you remember the house at all? You would be surprised to see how nicely I fixed it up for her. No doubt I should, replied Holland, thinking of the Vaughn and Marheim valuables. It is surprisingly livable, but it is drafty, McVeigh went on. The truth is, I ought to have gone south, as I meant to do last week. But one cannot foresee everything. The winters have been open until Christmas so often lately. However, I made a mistake and am perfectly willing to rectify it. If you have no objection, I'll go and bring her back here. If you have any respect for your skin, you won't move from that chair. Oh, the devil, Holland, don't be so... He hesitated for the right word, not wishing to be unjust. So obtuse. Listen to that wind. It's cold here. Think what it must be in that shanty. Very unpleasant, I should think. More than that, more than that. Suffering, I have no doubt. Why, she might freeze to death if anything went wrong with the fire. It is not safe. It's a distinct risk to leave her, let alone that a storm like this would scare any girl alone in a place like that. There is some danger to her life. Don't you see that? Yes, I see, returned Geoffrey. But you ought to have thought of that before you came burgling in a blizzard. Thought of it? Of course I thought of it. But I had no idea whatever of being caught. With old McFarlane laid up and the two boys away, it did seem about the safest job yet. There was a pause, for Geoffrey evidently had no intention of even arguing the matter, and presently McVeigh continued. Now you know you would feel badly tomorrow morning if anything went wrong with her, and you knew you could have helped it. Helped it, said Geoffrey. What do you mean? Let you loose on the country for the sake of a story no sane man would believe? Well, returned McVeigh, judiciously. Perhaps you could not do that, but, he added brightly, you could go yourself. Yes, said Geoffrey, I could. Then I think you ought to be getting along. Upon my word, McVeigh, said Holland, you are something of a humorist, aren't you? McVeigh again looked puzzled, but rose to the occasion. Oh, hardly that, he said. Every now and then I have a way of putting things, a way of my own. I find often I am able to amuse people. But if you are cheered yourself, you make other people so. I was just thinking that it must be a great thing for men who have been in prison for years to have someone come in with a new point of view. I'm sure you will be an addition to prison life. It's an ill wind, you know. It's an ill wind for my sister, literally enough. Come, Holland, you can certainly trust me. Do be starting. Why, what do you take me for? said the exasperated Geoffrey. Do you really suppose that I am going, looking for a den of your accomplices in order to give you a chance to escape? Accomplices? exclaimed McVeigh, and for the first time a shade of anger crossed his brow. Accomplices? I have no accomplices. Everything I do I think I am able to do alone. Still, he added, putting aside his annoyance, if you feel nervous about leaving me, I'd just as lief give you my word of honor to stay here until you come back. Your what? McVeigh made a slight gesture of his shoulders, as if he were being a good deal tried. Oh, anything you like, he said. I suppose you could lock me up in a closet. I don't think we need trouble to arrange the details, said Geoffrey dryly, but I'll tell you what I will do. After I get you safely in jail tomorrow, I'll get a trap and go and look up this hut. It may be too late then. It may, said Geoffrey, 
and continued to read. Yet he had no further satisfaction in his book. He knew that the burglar kept casting meditative glances at him as if in wonder at such brutality, and in truth, his own mind was not entirely at ease. If by any chance the story were true, if there was a woman at his doors freezing to death, how could he sit enjoying the fire? But on the other hand, could anyone have a more evident motive for deception than his informant? What better opportunity for escape could be arranged? It was so evident, so impudent, as to be almost convincing. What more likely, for instance, than the hut was a regular rendezvous for criminals and tramps, that by going he would be walking into the veriest trap? Yet again, there was the report confirmed by Harris's story that a woman was in some way connected with these robberies. The wind whistled round the house with a suggestion of difficulty, of combat with the elements, of actual danger, perhaps, that suddenly gave Geoffrey a new view of delay. Had it not something the air of cowardice, or at least of laziness? He found his eyes had read the same page three times, while his brain was busy devising means by which McVeigh could be secured in his absence, if he went. At length he rose suddenly to his feet. I'll go, he said, but before I go, I'll tie you up so safely that if I don't come back, you'll starve to death before you'll be able to get out or make anyone hear you. On these terms, do you still want me to go? Oh, yes, I want you to go, said McVeigh. Only for goodness sake, be careful. If you should feel any temptation to lie down and go to sleep, don't yield to it. They say it's fatal. The great thing is to keep on walking. Oh, shut up, said Geoffrey. In view of the possibility that he was going to meet death at the hands of his fluent companion's accomplices, he found this friendly advice unbearable. This hut, I take it, he said, is an old woodcutter's shanty in the north woods. Yes, something over a mile and a half north of here. I know the place, said Geoffrey. Now come along, and we'll see how I can fix you up until I come back. He had in mind a heavy upstairs cedar closet. It had been designed by a thoughtful architect for the storing of summer-wearing apparel, and was strongly built. It had besides the advantage of having a door that opened in, and so was difficult to break open from the inside. Here, having removed a complete burglar's outfit from his pockets, Geoffrey disposed McVeigh, being met with a readiness on McVeigh's part that seemed to prove either that he was sincere in his belief in Holland's safe return, or else was perfectly confident of being able to open the door as soon as Geoffrey's back was turned. But he'll find himself mistaken, Geoffrey murmured, as, having locked the door, he turned away. At this instant, a faint knocking was audible, and, gathering that McVeigh had some final instructions to give, Geoffrey again opened the door. By the way, said the burglar, and for the first time a certain constraint, amounting almost to embarrassment, was discernible in his manner. My sister has no idea about... It would be a great shock to her. In fact, you understand, she has not discovered exactly how our money comes to us. Do you expect me to believe that? asked Geoffrey. I grant it does not sound likely, returned McVeigh, and indeed would not be possible with any other man than myself but I hit upon a pretty good yarn, worked out well every way. I told her, I don't want to hear your infernal lies, but it might be convenient for you to know. I told her, McVeigh chuckled, that I was employed as night watchman at Drake's paper mill. That, of course, kept me out all night, and she must think night watchmen get good wages. That was just it. I told her Drake was an old friend of mine and just wanted an excuse to give me an allowance until he found me a better job. 
You see, I just lost a nice job in a bank. I suppose it would be indiscreet to inquire why? Well, we won't discuss it, said McVeigh with an agreeable smile. Of course, she could understand that such an inferior position as a watchman's had to be kept a profound secret, hence our remote mode of life and the fact that I don't allow a butcher or baker to come near us. I tell her that if it were known that I had held such a poor position, it would interfere with my getting a better. So, if you should happen to find that you have to explain to her why I am detained here... If I should explain to her, said Geoffrey, what do you suppose I am going to do? Well, I suppose you'll find it necessary, said McVeigh. Indeed, as a matter of fact, I would much rather have you do it than do it myself. Still, you might bear in mind to tell her as gently as possible. If she were your own sister... Oh, go to the devil, said Geoffrey, and slammed the door. All right, that's chapters one and two of The Burglar in the Blizzard. I'd love to know what you think of it so far. Do you think Jeffrey's going to go to McVeigh's cabin? And what do you think of his story? Do you think he's telling the truth? Is, does his sister live there? Or do you think he's going to find a gang of ruffians? Well, stay tuned for next week, and we'll find out what happens next in our story. I want to thank you, as always, for listening today. I hope you are having a great month of April and are getting some great stories read. And I hope you enjoyed this one. I would love to hear from you. If you have a favorite Christmas memory or tradition you want to share, please reach out to me at cozychristmaspodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to help support our show in a financial way, you can find links in the show notes. You can go to ko-fi.com. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support the show. That's ko-fi.com backslash cozy Christmas. With every donation, I will send you a Christmas card or a Christmas bookmark as my way of saying thank you for donating to the podcast. So I will be back next week. I'll read part two of this story, probably be chapters three and four. And then the following week, we'll finish it out with reading chapters uh, five through seven. Uh, reach out to me on social medias. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Occasionally, I can be found lurking on TikTok. Let me know what you're reading for this month's challenge. And uh, we, we can keep the conversation going there. All right. So until next time, remember to be kind to each other and to do good. And let us honor Christmas in our heart and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.